This is God's word from Isaiah 64. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. You welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways. But we have sinned and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us like the wind. No one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us melt because of our iniquity. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Lord, do not be terribly angry or remember our iniquity forever. Please look, all of us are your people. Let's pray again. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we confess every time that we come to it, we need help. So please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand these words that were written a long, long time ago in a different language to a different people in different circumstances. Holy Spirit, bridge those gaps and help us to see more of what it means to, to walk with you faithfully, to trust you, to lament the sin and brokenness of our world and ourselves and long for the return of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you uh, again. My name is Tim. If we haven't had a chance to meet, and I have been helping out uh, here at Sound City for uh, well over a year and a half now. It's been quite a while. I started off helping with music. Now I've been helping out with uh, some of the teaching. I live in Portland. Uh, I do consulting work with churches, and um, uh, it's just great to be here with all of you again. Uh, as you have heard, as we turn to the scriptures today, we're going to be talking a lot about longing and lament. And I want to start off with a, a question, and that's this. How do we handle difficult things in our life? What do we do, uh, particularly in the midst of, of very negative emotions and, and difficult life circumstances like, like loss and pain? Hurt and trauma, brokenness, even wars, uh, wars upon wars, it feels like in our world right now. What do we do when, when things you thought would be steady actually fall apart? Jobs, finances, churches, different aspects of your nation that you've counted on. What do you do when, when people who you depend on leave in, in death? Either or, or, or either in death or, or in, in broken relationships? What do you do when people you trusted betray you? These are the kind of difficult things that I'm talking about. And, and, and I think there are a, a number of common responses to pain and difficulty, negative emotions in our world, and particularly in the church. And some of these vary depending on your personality depending on uh, the family you were raised in. Uh, I think one of the most common Christian responses um, that I think a number of us can identify, I know I can, uh, to, to these difficult things and difficult feelings is simply denial, right? The idea is, is emotions are, are problematic at best and satanic more than likely, right? 
And so they are to be stuffed. I think of, if you're uh, familiar with the, uni- uh, the, the, the Lego movie, the, the, the character Unikitty. Um, Unikitty like stuffs all of her emotions until she, she can't handle it. Then she just explodes in a, in a crazy uh, kind of storm of anger. One of the common things is denial. Uh, it, it just do your duty, don't complain, smile when people ask you how you are, and f- forgive me if any of you say this too often, but I just want to maybe pick on you a little bit and ask you to consider it. You, 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 when you say, how's it going, you say things like, better than I deserve, or, or, uh, or you know, God is good, uh, these kind of things, and, and yes, we are doing better than we deserve, and yes, God is good, and yet that can be a common way that Christians just kind of stuff things, right? Another response when, when you deal with difficult things uh, on the other end, kind of end of the spectrum is, is to be absolutely overwhelmed by them and sink down into a, a very dark place of depression. Become overwhelmed by the pain and, and, despair, and kind of lean into despair, even maybe of, of life itself. Another response can be anger, right? Uh, when, when, when difficult things happen to us, we lash out at the one who hurts us. We take justice, or more often vengeance, into our own hands and become a bit of a crusader against these causes, right? Now, sometimes you do have to just kind of soldier on in the midst of difficult things. Sometimes uh, the tide of depression rolls over us in a way that we can't really control, and sometimes there is action to take to hold people accountable. But what if there was another way, a a way that uh, I think is almost invisible, in the modern American church, but is hiding in plain sight throughout all the scriptures. It's not the only biblical response, but it is a consistent biblical response to suffering and pain and difficulty and loss, almost without exception in the Bible. And that's what we're talking about today, this twofold movement of longing and lament. By longing are, are actually the, the dictionary definitions serve us pretty well to, to explain what we mean by this. Uh, the dictionary, this is a combination of a bunch of different dictionary definitions, but longing is a persistent, yearning, unfulfilled desire, usually for something distant or far off. And, and they describe lament as a passionate expression of sorrow, of pain, of grief, and often uh, combined with, with confusion. This is what we're going to be talking a lot about in the latter part of, of Isaiah 63 and in the chapter of, of 64. And if you've been around for the study in Isaiah, you kind of know the story. Like uh, God's people, Israel, uh, they're in a really tough place. Uh, they, the, the kingdom divided to Israel in the north and, and Judah in the south. And by the time we get to the latter part of, of the book of Isaiah, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Assyria has already come and invaded Israel to the north. And now Babylon has come to power and is threatening uh, Judah in, in the south. And in the midst of it, God sends Isaiah. And he starts off with a message of judgment from God. Essentially, you've brought this tough place on yourself is kind of a lot of what he has to say. But then in the latter part of the book, it kind of shifts in tone to a lot of longing and lament, a lot of, a lot of reassurance to God's people that, that yes, no, things, things are tough. They're actually going to get worse before they get better, but there's still hope. And a lot of the way they cling to that hope is by lamenting their sin and the pain and destruction it's brought and longing for God's mercy and deliverance for the better times that God has promised in the future. 
So this is what we're going to talk about in this passage. And when we come to this passage, sometimes one, one way, just to, to give you a little bit of a, a how I kind of go about studying these kind of passages is one of the key things that reveals the emphasis of a particular passage is how it's structured. Once you figure out the structure of the argument, the structure of, of what is being said, you can kind of, it's a bit of a clue to what the big idea is. And that was very clearly the case here. And there's a, a particular commentary by a pastor named Ray Ortland that helped me see this structure because we kind of have three movements uh, alternating between longing and then lament three different times from the latter part of chapter 63 all the way through chapter 64. And since we're doing this big chunk, I'm going to paint in a little broader strokes in the text. Sometimes you're just dealing with one or two verses and you almost go word by word. Here, I'm just going to paint a bit more broadly as we take a bit of an overview of this passage with the time that we have. So it starts off in chapter 63, verse 15, with with a an expression of, of longing. And you can see quickly what it is. He starts off in verse 15 and says, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. The feeling is, is that, that God is not paying attention. He's saying, saying, God, do you even see what's going on here? Where are you? We, we need you. We're longing for your attention. He goes on and says, says where, is, where is your zeal, meaning your jealousy and your passion, your envy for your people, your might, meaning your strength? He says, I thought those were things that you were all about. Aren't you still jealous for your people? Do you still have all the strength that you have? Where are you? Have you changed? You seem held back from me, he says. He says, if we're honest about our situation, what he says is, is, is our ancestors wouldn't even recognize us if they showed up today. Abraham, if he showed up, wouldn't know us. Israel, which is um, uh, the, the, it's the name of, of the nation, but it also was the name of a man who started off life as Jacob, and then he had this wrestling, literal wrestling match with God, and God renamed him afterwards Israel, which means struggles with God, and that's what God's people are named after. I always like to, to, to remind people that's what the word Israel means, which explains a lot, doesn't it? Isaiah is longing in this first part for, for God's attention. Where are you? O oh Lord, our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. We, 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 we walked with you carefully and closely, but you seem to be absent now. And then he switches to lament in verse 17. And his lament almost, almost sounds like he's blaming God for their situation. He says, says, Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? Why do you harden our hearts so that we fear you not? It sounds like he's blaming God, but, but, but the, the, the kind of background story as you read the whole of scripture is God doesn't cause people to be unfaithful because he doesn't have to. We're born unfaithful to him. So we don't need any help. Everyone is born unfaithful to God because of sin. And then sometimes, as people persist in their sin stubbornly, God kind of says something like a parent. He says, okay, well, if that's really what you want, I will let you experience the full consequence. Kind of like that classic scenario when your little kid keeps wanting to grab the hot pan on the stove, and eventually, when it's not super crazy hot and isn't going to really hurt them bad, you let them touch it so they freak out a little bit and learn the lesson, right? Even that, even that pain is, is a mercy. It's not vindictive punishment. It's his mercy in letting us see the emptiness of our ways so that we might return to our Creator. 
Isaiah continues to lament their sin in verse 18. He says, he says, look, we had it good for a couple of generations. We held possession of this land for a little while, but now you, our adversaries have, have trampled it. Verse 19, we become like ones um, over whom you never ruled. He says, he says, we become like you were never our God in the first place. So in this opening section, he longs for God's attention, and then he, he laments the brokenness that their sin has, get, has, has kind of brought them to. It's kind of the, this question like I put on the slide. It's like, man, good grief. How did we get here? How did we get so lost? Such a messed up place. And just notice a few things right off the bat. Both his longing and his lament, they are brutally honest. He doesn't put a good face on anything. He doesn't minimize how he feels. He's like, this is terrible. And he just sits there. He doesn't rush too quick to, to, uh, to, to kind of um, uh, turn back to something more hopeful. He's like, this is bad. And he gets very specific uh, about what he's feeling and about what is going on and how he sees it. His longing is, is true to that dictionary definition. It's, it's persistent. It's yearning. It's, it's about an unfilled desire. He gives voice to these things as he looks for a future hope that just seems like it's clinging by a thread, but still there. And then he laments. He laments his sin, the sin of his people, the pain and loss, the brokenness of the world. And, and he does so just like that dictionary definition with a real sense of, of confusion, like, God, what's going on? Well, then he repeats the pattern uh, in this second movement, starting in, in chapter 64. This is what we just heard part of uh, in the scripture reading. He begins this time by, by longing for God's presence. He says, oh, that you would rend, which means tear. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He pictures the, the, the sky like a, like a sheet of fabric. And the idea is, would you tear the sheet open and, and come through, break through into our world? He's longing for God's presence. He says, uh, when fires kindle brushwood, when fire causes water to boil, because fire is usually associated with God's presence in the Old Testament. To make known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble. Uh, in the Old Testament, whenever it says the nations, it's talking about countries who oppose God, particularly here, this nation of Assyria that was the largest empire that the world had ever known, and they were a brutal conquering people. And then there was an uprising within Assyria partway through uh, the, the, the time span that Isaiah is, is kind of ministering to God's people. Uh, and, and in this uprising, Babylon comes to power and it becomes an even bigger empire. Then the, it's still the largest but the empire that the world had known, but even bigger. That's what he's talking about. Would you just come down? If you would come down, everything would be different. Verse 3, he says, come down like those times when you did awesome things. Awesome things like, like parting the waters in the Exodus when they were running from Egypt. Awesome things like God himself coming down and, and revealing his law and his word to Moses on Mount Sinai. And they were awesome things, he said, that we did not look for, unexpected awesome things. Oh, that you would surprise us with your presence in the midst of our distress. Then in verse 4, in the first part of 5, he, he, he says essentially, throughout all of history, no one has seen or heard or perceived any God like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. 
those who wait with patient, confident, expectant faith, not only God's commands, uh, not just obeying God's commands, but, but, but doing so, so joyfully. He longs that God would come down and be present because he feels that God is absent in the midst of their circumstances. He's not shy in voicing that. And then he laments. He laments again. He laments this time the, the, the depth of their sin. He says, he says, we wish you would come down. Oh, that you would come down, but there's a problem. This is the reality. Behold, you're angry and we sinned. The second part of that line, in our sins we have been a long time, we shall be saved. The, the, the Christian standard actually says it better at this point. This point it says, says, how can we be saved if we remain in our sins? He's saying, he's saying, we are in sin, we know you're angry, and it's been this way a long time. And what he means by a long time, according to what we know of history, is he's really talking about probably since the, the, the kingdom divided, and this has been somewhere between 150 and 200 years of a downward spiral for God's people. Things getting worse and worse. Parts of the country that they held uh, being taken more and more until eventually all of it will be taken. They will be invaded everywhere. He says, is salvation even possible at this point? He's like, we want you to come, but, but what would happen if you did? Can we even be saved anymore after it's gone on this long? And then he goes back to, he, 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 just, he continues in, in his lament. He says, we become like one who is unclean. And this is, this is specific language. If you remember uh, earlier in the year, the study in, in, in Leviticus, um, uncleanness is a, is a huge theme in Leviticus, and it's usually rooted in the idea of, of a disease called leprosy that was highly contagious in those times. And a leper, would, wherever they went, they were instructed so they didn't spread the disease. They had to call out, unclean, unclean, so that everyone would run away from them and have no contact with them whatsoever. That's the image here. It's, it's uncleanness before God. He says all of our righteous deeds are like a, a polluted garment, which literally, I'm just the messenger here, not my interpretation. The word literally means a menstrual garment. It's a pretty vivid metaphor, which is another image from Leviticus, which uh, to lighten the mood slightly, I will always remember uh, the month that I came up and, uh, and, and uh, to lead worship, and I was trying to pick songs that went with the theme of the message that was called uh, Rules for Bodily Discharges. <laughs> <laughs> Were some of you here for that, that zinger of a sermon? Yeah, yeah, you remember. Never quite heard a sermon title like that, right? But that's the idea here. The, the, it was, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dual, this is what's called parallelism in Hebrew poetry. It's, it's say the same thing twice with slightly different emphasis to increase the meaning. So it's like we're unclean. It's like one of the most unclean things that you can even think of is what he's saying. Saying even at our very best, even, even at the best times that we ever had, when we seem most righteous before God, we're still a mixed bag. And it goes both ways. At our most fallen, we still bear God's image, but even at our best, we are still unclean. Every motive, every thought, every intention, every action is mixed. He says, because of this, we all fade like a leaf. Tis the season for that, right? 
It's a vivid metaphor that we can relate to at this point in in autumn. And our iniquities are are like the wind. They they take us away. Just like the wind picks up a leaf and takes it away. You know, I I watched most of the leaves in my front yard fall off our big tree in our front yard this week. And I'm like, I'm going to have to rake those up. But then the wind started. And I don't know where they went. My neighbor, one of my neighbors has them. Uh, So... God bless them, but uh, there's no more leaves left in my front yard. That's, that's, the, that's the image here. He's saying, saying, our sin makes us fade like a leaf, and just like a leaf is carried away by the wind, so we are just carried away by our sin wherever it will take us, almost uncontrollably. And the end result is, verse 7, there's no one who calls on your name. There's no one who rouses himself to take hold of you, meaning uh, who can wake themselves up from a nap. We're asleep, he says. And so you have justly hidden your face from us. You made us melt in the hands of our iniquities, melt like like, like molten metal. Notice how Isaiah laments here. It's interesting because we do this even less. We we may venture into personal lament, but this is what's called a, a communal or a community or corporate lament. Now, we can't assume that Isaiah is sinless. We assume he has sinned, but we also assume that Isaiah is walking more closely with God than the rest of of the people around him. Uh, And yet he confesses and laments the sin of all the people as his own. This is something consistent throughout all the scriptures. He says, we have sinned. Even though a lot of people around him have sinned more than he had, he says, we have sinned. We have been in our sin a long time. We have been unclean. We fade like a leaf and are carried away by our sin. And we also know he has a small group of followers that are following him, and and so he's probably leading them in saying these words. He has like a little, very small congregation that that followed him and listened to his words because most people didn't want anything to do with him, Uh, Isaiah, as he said these things and wrote them down. So longing and lament, we learn here, can be both individual as well as communal. And then he, he kind of has one more round here uh, of longing. Longing to be shaped by God's touch this time. Oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You, uh, the, the work of your hands. He says, look, as, as bad as things are right now, we still belong to you. And we want you to shape us again. Be not terribly angry. Remember not our iniquity forever. Please look, and it's the same word that, that uh, the, the very first longing started out with. When he says, look, give us your attention, he's saying, please look down on us. Please intervene. Longing for God's presence. Look down from heaven and see. And then he laments one more time all that they've lost. The holy cities have become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Your holy and beautiful house has been burned with fire. All our places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things? Saying, what, when are you going to do something about it, he's saying. Why do you keep silent in the midst of all of it? Again and again, we see Isaiah return to these themes throughout the book. In this specific passage and in lots of other ones. He's brutally honest with God. He's very specific, holding almost nothing back. He longs with a persistent yearning, giving voice to to desires that, that go unfulfilled. And then he laments his sin and the sin of his people. 
He laments his pain and his loss. And he does so in a way and with an intensity that if we're honest, I think would make a lot of of kind of modern day Christians, especially Americans, pretty uncomfortable. Maybe even some of us. Maybe some of us might even be in our heart just kind of rolling our eyes at him uh, in criticism, like, don't be such a drama king slash queen, right? Don't let your emotions carry you away. It's like the voice of my dad in my head, right? Maybe some of you had parents like that. Where is your faith? Don't you know that God works out everything for good, right? Isn't that what some of us want to, to, to kind of rise up? As some of us, how we've been trained to respond to lament and longing and, and, and pouring your heart out when things are, are tough? And being honest about that, you're just like, come on, we all have it tough. Let's get back to work, right? Well, well this longing and lament, they're, they're not unique just to Isaiah. They're, they're throughout the scriptures. And just, just a few high points the Psalms, I like to make this point all the time. Uh, the, the word Psalms uh, means praises. The Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is, is, is Sefer Tehillim, which means book of praises. And so we can assume that all 150 Psalms are poetic songs of worship to God. And in that, the number one genre of Psalm meaning that there are more psalms like this than any other kind of psalm is, you want to guess? Lament. So, so in the most definitive revelation that we have from God about worship, the primary genre of those songs are laments. I think we can learn something powerful from that that a lot of what worship is going to look like, a lot of what praising God and seeking his glory in the stuff of our lives is going to look like is lament. But you don't hear that on Caleb super often, do you? Right? This is not what we want to hear. We're just like, no, give us the hope, man. Give us, and and I, I get that. I feel that way sometimes too. But it means that the lament is to play a significant part of our personal worship and our corporate worship. Consider the prophets. The other prophets are full of these same kind of themes. Remember that there is a book called Lamentation, right? Written by Jeremiah, who would come uh, not too long after Isaiah died. Um, and, and he comes, and, and he's called the, the, the he's nicknamed uh, historically by a lot of scholars, the, the weeping prophet for the book of Lamentations because he's weeping over the destruction. He comes, uh, Isaiah doesn't live long enough to see the destruction of Judah, um, but he does. And Babylon comes, invades, destroys Jerusalem, uh, and carries off all the people into exile. And he weeps over that. The whole book of Lamentations is a study in lament. That's what the word means. Consider Job. Just briefly, Job, the story of Job, he loses everything in his life, finances, children, his home. And after he loses everything, his wife gives him some fantastic advice, if you remember what it is. His wife says, Job, curse God and die. Like, thanks, wife, that's really encouraging. But he doesn't. He doesn't curse God and he doesn't die. And most of what the book is, is him lamenting and mourning his loss. 
asking tough questions of God, longing for God's presence, and crying out to him, wondering where he is, just like the kind of stuff that we just read from Isaiah. And that's how he stays true and continues to walk in faith and trust in God, even in the midst of of, of overwhelming loss. And as you might guess, Jesus lives in longing and lament as well. At least two different very specific times in the gospel, Jesus expresses a heartbreaking lament, and both of them are over the city of Jerusalem, which is meant to be the capital city of God's people that represents like God's people on earth for the the, the people of Israel. They're the people that should have welcomed him, the people that should have worshipped him, but instead they rejected him. On an earlier on a trip, kind of earlier on in his ministry, when he comes to Jerusalem, we don't know if it's the first, well, we know it's not the first time, but somewhere in the middle of his ministry, he says this in Matthew twenty three: "O Jerusalem, you just 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 hear the tone." I'm not going to try and be a voice actor here, but just you can hear the tone in the tone, like 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 how brutal this is for him. O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And stones those who are sent to it. Remember Isaiah, according to church history, is executed by a king of Judah. As were many of the prophets. As Jesus will be eventually. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. And then Luke records similar words uh, that he says when he enters in, in Luke's gospel, Jerusalem, for the final time, about a week before he's executed. It says when he drew near to the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, that you, even you, had known this day the things that would make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, because you didn't recognize me, is what he's saying. Jesus laments and he longs. I think one of his, his most powerful prayers of, of longing is, is, is John 17, where he's longing for all these big realities for, for both his current disciples and those who will believe, even us here. He, he prays for everyone who will come to believe in him. So that includes us. And he prays things like, like don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. He's, he's flashing forward to, to where he is uh, at the right hand of God, his heavenly father. He says, I wish that everyone could just see and be with me and, and see you face to face, but it's not time yet. God himself in the flesh lived a life marked by lament and longing, and that's why Isaiah, which you heard this, I believe, two or three Messages ago. That's why Isaiah prophetically calls Jesus the man of sorrows. In Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men. He was, he was a man of sorrows. When, when, when the scriptures say a man of this or that, it means like what they're known for. He was full of sorrow and pain. 
It's who he was and who he was known for. It says he was acquainted with grief. The Hebrew word for acquainted is literally, and it's most often translated as, as known for. He was a man who was full of sorrow and pain, and he was known for grief. This word is also sometimes translated as, as sickness or suffering or sadness. Isaiah teaches us that, that, that sorrow and grief are, are foundational attributes of who Jesus is. And, and I want to say this as, as, as tactfully and, and patiently as I can, but if your life has no space for lament and sorrow and grief, then your life has very little space for Jesus. Because this is who he is. Those who deny that, those who would say that the, the, the Christian response is to, to stuff and kill any negative or depressing emotions, they don't understand who Jesus is. I'm not saying nobody who doesn't sit around and lament all the time isn't a Christian. I'm not, I'm not trying to go that far. I'm just saying, like, this is who Jesus is. Man, I was so struck by that this week, just returning to that title of the man of sorrows. That's not how I've known him to be. That's not how he has been presented to me more times than not, right? Much of Jesus' life was grief and sorrow. He was betrayed by almost everyone closest to him. He was rejected by Israel, who should have worshipped him. He was brought before government powers on fake charges over and over again, eventually executed for crimes he didn't commit. But on the cross, it got even more intense for him because all the sorrow of his life, he, he actually... He actually ended up taking on even more. When you jump to verse 5, he was, he was pierced for our transgressions, all of our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. It's actually by his wounds, through his suffering, that we can be healed. That we can even come to know him. But there's another verse in the middle that hit me like, a ton of bricks, even, even, even more profoundly as I was returning to this passage in light of this idea of lament and, and longing. In verse 4, notice it says, so, so he was a man of sorrow just in his life. It was a tough life. Then he was, he was betrayed by people, and, and, he, and then on the cross he took all of our sin to send the whole world onto himself. But it says in verse 4, and this is good news, he has borne our griefs and he carries he carries our sorrows so, so despite how much grief and sorrow he experienced he's still eager to take ours on himself it doesn't mean that they go completely away but it means that when we, when we walk closely with him when we bring difficult things to him, we actually grow closer with him. He understands uniquely because he has experienced more pain and loss than any human being ever has or ever will for all time. So no matter what you are experiencing, no matter what you're going through or have gone through or see on the horizon, Jesus has experienced it more deeply and more profoundly. And he understands and he invites you to share it with him, and he'll take it on to himself. 
So in light of all that, what can we learn from this? What, what, what effect is this supposed to have? I think you're kind of picking up what I'm putting down. When we go through tough stuff, more times than not, someone around us who means well, I, I believe they mean well. I don't think they're trying to, to hurt us or deceive us. It's probably how they were raised, right? But nonetheless, Christians can really tend to pressure, like, grow up, deal with it, don't be ruled by your emotions. As if, as if, if we actually leaned into some of these things and felt negative emotions, we would be overwhelmed by them, uncontrollably, right? That they're, that they're too overwhelming to deal with, so we stuff them. As if putting on a fake positive persona in denial of pain and loss is a better witness of the Christian life. That's why people see us the way they do so often, as fake and weird. Because we tend to do this, right? We tend to act as if we were somehow had transcended humanity, right? To be unfeeling. But how small a God do you have if he can't take that, right? And it's just not what the scriptures teach us. What if it was exactly these experiences and feelings? It was exactly in places that are really dark are actually the places where we, where we meet Jesus, where we walk with him most intimately, what if it was in dark and difficult places where we're actually most profoundly shaped by him? Where, where, where he experienced his presence in the most profound way and where he actually does this work in us to, to open us up to others. This has been very much my experience. I would say in the last year, but particularly in, in recent months. I won't go into all the details, but just a lot of things stacked up, difficult things some deeply broken relationships in my family that are very painful, that I don't know why they're so broken, uh, just people who won't talk, who, who, who essentially want me to treat them as if they're dead, but they're not dead. And I can't do anything about it. Another situation is a dear friend who we were in ministry together revealed like a horrific pattern of sin in his life that is just absolutely destroying his family and sending ripples through all of the ministry leader community in Portland. And just ongoing things that are almost too many to list of sin and brokenness and wreckage around ministry leadership. This is, this is the sad reality of what it means to be a pastor for decades is unfortunately, I just feel like I accumulate as many broken stories as, as good healing stories. And it's probably not the case, but that's how it seems. And when I stuff those things, or when I ignore them, or when I just go to anger and, and, and want to do something about it, right? I feel my heart get harder. I feel my heart get more dead. I feel judgment and self-righteousness grow inside me. I start to feel distant from God. I start to feel isolated from others. No one understands what I'm going through, right? I can laugh at it, but I feel that way a lot. 
and I get increasingly motivated to burn things down, to take action, like I gotta do something, right? But when instead I mourn the pain, when I lament the sin in my own life and in those around me, when I pour my heart out to God and just say, this is, this is bad. I don't know what to do. Where are you? And, I, and when I long for his presence in the midst and ultimately long to be free from this body and this world of death, I actually find a very surprising thing happens. It, it, my heart gets softer. I actually feel God's presence that seemed absent and it opens me up to other people. And here's how you know that it's doing the work it's supposed to do. It's because people who hurt you, they start to feel less like enemies. And you start to just see their own brokenness. You start to actually have compassion. That's how you know that lament and longing are doing their work. And that's how you know you're on the wrong path is when you have that self-righteousness and everyone's an enemy and you got to crusade against them and make things right. You are not on the right path. I just want to tell you, this is our whole world right now. This is the world of social media. This is the world of, uh, we don't even need social in front of the word, just media, right? Is that you have to do something, get angry, right? And there is a place for doing something. I'm not saying that we're never supposed to do anything about what's wrong in the world. And yet, if we're going to be doing it in the name of Jesus, we should do it with his heart. He rebukes self-righteous leaders occasionally, but for the most part, his heart is broken. And that's to be our heart as well. Remember his word when he says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In Psalm 34, 18. Remember that the first two, what are called the Beatitudes and in the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Meaning the opposite of the rich in spirit. Those who think a lot of themselves, who think they got it all together, it's actually blessed are those who think everything's falling apart. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And then his second statement is, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And it just keeps going on from there. What does it look like practically? It's not complicated. You just have to, to engage. Individually, in prayer, in song, in journaling. Community-wise, in prayer and discussion, in sharing and song, just like we're doing now. Lamenting the sin and brokenness of the world, longing for the day when things will finally be made right. When Jesus will come and he will wipe away every tear. That's what we long for. And in the meantime, my prayer is just that we would have that heart, that tender, broken heart of Jesus more in our own life, towards those around us. So the more would know who Jesus really is. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that these strange images and really intense metaphors written thousands of years ago can, can just cut across time and circumstances. And I just pray for, for everyone here in this room, either that's just in the midst of, of difficult and dark things, whether they're stuffing them 
whether they're feeling overwhelmed and depressed by them, whether they're rising up in self-righteousness or whether it's some other response or combination thereof that I haven't talked about. We just praise you that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are near to the crushed in spirit. That's such good news to me. I pray it's good news for those who are here today. I just pray that all of us, even in this week marked by thanksgiving, would even just take time to to voice what is painful and wrong in our life. That, That it might be even put in right perspective in comparison and in contrast to what we actually really truly do have to be thankful for. Give us grateful hearts. Give us compassionate hearts. Give us hearts that are soft like Jesus because of what he has done for us. And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.